0: Moncrief on News Talk.
1: Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.
0: Now, how and why does someone wake up one morning and decide that they're Jesus or think that they're dead? The BBC journalist Victoria Shepherd is the author of A History of Delusions and joins us now. Afternoon, Victoria. Good afternoon, John. Are we all a little bit delusional? Is there a kind of a scale of delusion?
1: Ah, oh, yes. This is this is something I came across in the early days of my research, and it means you know we all have skin in the game with this with this topic. We can't look at the, the historic characters that I've researched. You know, we can't see them as as curios in a, in a cabinet. Um, I came across this um, this piece of research from um, Baltimore in 1991, and it was actually the first time that anyone. Um, in the, in the kind of medical establishment, had ever decided to ask the general public about uh, their delusional thinking, and before that, it was only people with very extreme um, delusional presentations who ended up in in asylums, essentially, or being sort of categorised by um, by by physicians. And when they did bother to ask the general public in Baltimore in in 1991, they found that yeah, we're all somewhere on the scale. We're all we all have at least one six. False belief about ourselves, which which can't be shaken, despite plenty of evidence to the contrary, and our loved, loved ones would say that's not true. Um, and that's the definition of delusions, which is a kind of generally recognised uh, working definition: a fixed false idea that that can't, that that won't, you know, logic won't touch the sides with. And yes, we're all somewhere on on that spectrum, and it really changes how you look at um, historic p- characters from the past who've experienced delusions, which seem they're simply what we all have, but technicolour, you know, with the volume turned up, um, and that's only hmm. how I've looked at them.
0: Yeah, yeah. They, they, does that presuppose that there's, if you like, a gold standard of reality uh, that we all uh, we wow. adhere to or don't adhere to? Well, uh, I mean,
1: yes. I mean, there is, but I mean, I, I would argue and argue, I, I argue in the book that uh, what what these delusions from the past really show us is how fragile that kind of common sense reality seems to be and and that's unnerving because mm. obviously you know we we need to have um generally accepted um realities in order to to function and we and we do have them um but you know the question of of um somebody's reality being somebody else's you know or somebody's belief being somebody else's heresy and so on and so forth you know obviously you can go down that road very far and there's uh, there's no absolute but certainly for me what's so interesting about the subject is um, how they make you see that those that those accepted, generally agreed realities are they're more permeable and slightly more unstable than than we might
0: like to think. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so, so is um, are they a coping mechanism of sorts, or are or, or, you know it kind of taking little bits of the available evidence and coming up with a camel rather than a horse?
1: Yeah, I mean, what was so interesting looking at these at these people from the past is, is that you could see what, from what seems initially crazy or, you know, the, the stories are sometimes incredibly wild um, of people who think that, you know, the, the king of France, King Charles VI of France, he thought he turned into glass, for example. He's a 14th and 15th century king. Um, it's a kind of absurd to he is fighting the Hundred Years' War um, with England, um, but privately he's worried about smashing. And wants to wrap himself in blankets and has steel rods apparently put into his trousers to stop himself smashing. And it's a kind of ridiculous, um, absurd scenario. But when you start to really listen to these delusions, and it's true not just of the Glass King, but of all of them, if you really sit down and kind of pull up a chair metaphorically and listen to them, they're kind of um, communiques. They're encoded. They're sort of asking for interpretation and an audience. They're quite performative. And yeah, when you do listen, you do start to understand them. And what what initially presents as absurd or crazy starts to make sense. And I started to see patterns of of how they function. So simplest, you know, people who thought that they, who turned up at the medical um, establishment's new asylums in Paris in the 1800s, saying that they were Napoleon, for example, long after Napoleon had died. This is probably the simplest demonstration of that. You know, a wretched existence. They'd had a terrible time most of, most of the French population um, and at that by that point in the middle of the 1800s, and you know, putting on the costume, believing of course this is often you know unconscious. I'm not saying they're doing it consciously, but but becoming putting on the costume of Napoleon. He's the poster boy for autonomy, for power, for control. He's also a self-made man from from Corsica. He's not he's not part of the French um, upper classes, and you can see really clearly what that might do for you if you if you're struggling with a with a a terrible kind of political turmoil or great poverty, and so that's the simplest mechanism. But I've seen, you know, again and again, just like this idea that it, it, you know it helps you to that certain delusions, for instance, might help you to deal with conflict, mm. conflicting ideas. Inner conflict seems to be one of the hardest things that human beings have to deal with. We really don't like it. We really, we'd rather sit, we'd rather do anything almost than sit with conflicting forces in our heads. Um, And so conspiracy theory, I have a character in my book, James Tilly Matthews, who was a tea broker um, in the late 1700s, and he got himself to France, sort of got himself on a boat with lots of public figures, and and he was suddenly involved as a diplomat in in the French Revolution. They all suspected him, they all wanted to kill him very quickly, and he was kicked unceremoniously back to London, um, where he conceived this extraordinary um, delusions we find him next in, in Westminster shouting down at Lord Liverpool's government that the Jacobins have got his centrepiece of his delusion is this thing he called the heirloom which was a sort of contraption that used magnetic forces it was operated by a gang of kind of proto-Dikendian brigands who were he was trying to use magnetic forces to influence the minds of the politicians and bring revolution to this country and you know it's it's completely wild. He grew his believing, by the way, and the amazing uh, drawings of this. But you know, he was dealing with a, a political situation where um, you could you could you'd be on the wrong side every five minutes. It was flipped, flipping one way and the next. You know, really chaotic, hard to know who was the enemy and who was who was on your side. What was right? What was up? What was down? Mm. And you could see that paranoid conspiracy like that so it simplifies you know it gives, it organizes your enemy basically and, and um delusions often do that and even if they're not as extreme as, as that and as kind of technical as same silly matthews even in our own lives um organi- the, the power of a delusion and creating an alternative reality is kind of an ingenious thing to do um as a protection against against you know it's simplification and potentially a very dangerous simplification obviously but in the short term Protectors of, of things that are vague and ambiguous, and ultimately giving you this kind of sense of a story and a villain and a, and, and, and a hero and so on. Yeah, and, um, and that, you see that again and again with delusions.
0: And uh, uh, now, treating them the, or the treatments, attempts at treatment are, are, are interesting. You you do cite a case where they put they took several men who thought they were Jesus and put them in yeah. a room together. Uh, what what was the result of that?
1: Well, I mean, this is, you know, going back into history, the great organising book, The Anatomy Melancholy, has lots of stories about ruses, which is what the the quacks or physicians used to do often in the way, way distant past, where you sort of try and snap somebody out of the delusion by tricking them. So people, cases of people who thought they said they'd already died, for example, and the ruse would be that you'd you'd have a stooge, um, and they're kind of macabre, you know, in in a coffin. And you'd put the stooge in the coffin next to the person who said they'd already died. And then you'd, make, you'd ask the stooge to wake up and eat. And then the person next to them would say, oh, well, if he's eating, I can eat, and sort of snap them out of it. And obviously, you know, in a world of safeguarding and, and consent, we think that's absurd. But when I was researching, I, I discovered this case of a, essentially what, what's a, what we would think of still as a ruse going on in the, in the 19, early 1960s, um, which was in a, in a hospital um, in Michigan. Um and, and it was called the case of called the, the three Christs of Ypsilanti. Ips, and um Melton Riox, the psychiatrist, had decided he'd had three men he'd said that they were all Jesus and his his ruse um was to put them all in a room and and his, his kind of theory was that they would say, Well, if, if you're Jesus, I can't be Jesus But what actually happened was uh, was uh, literally a fist fight. None of them none of them none of them would would stand down as it were and say um, oh okay, well if if you are then maybe neither none of us are all you know, it didn't not it, it didn't have the outcome that he was expecting. Mm. And in fact I suspect that the reasons, you know, they're written up in the in the history books as having been incredibly successful, you know, flick of the switch, everyone was cured. I take that with a pinch of salt with the right. historic cases. I think there were probably more punch ups and um and slightly more <laughs> le- less happy endings with the with the early um with the early
0: readers, also, and some of the people with delusions, are they aware of the fact that society around them might think this is an odd idea you have, or, or, or are they so convinced it's true that they think everybody else should believe it as well?
1: People, this is this is really the nub of it. This is the most interesting question because this is what got me hooked in the first place. I thought, well, you know, the King of France was the first. Kind of the Glass King was the person, I, the story that I came across that really got me hooked, hooked as a kind of detective of delusions. And I was thinking, you know, you're standing, you're pushing your head above the parapet. You know, you're saying you're made of glass. The whole, All the courts of Europe are laughing at you for this for this ridiculous claim, this ridiculous belief. But you, he clung to it. He didn't let go of it. And that's a that's thing that's true of all delusions. People cling to them for life and death. Um, and they don't let go of them. And, you know, you'd think we're all programmed to kind of want to stay within society, aren't we? There's a very strong drive to be part of the part of the group and, mm. and, and not to do that. So then it got me thinking about and well, asking the question, well, what are they offering? Because it must be something really, really important, protection or, or some kind of psychological strategy that's worth kind of social ridicule. And nobody, you know, humiliation and ridicule is it's one of the hardest things to deal with as a human. You know, the ego does not like that. So, you know, that's what again and again brings you back to this very clear idea that they are offering something i mean for the king of france you know glasses and um, you can see kind of what it's doing if you stop and think about it it's a very interesting material it was a new material when when he had his, his glass delusion um heating sand until so it becomes transparent you know it's brittle it's transparent it's, it you can break it but it's also a treasure. And so it's kind of telling the people how to treat you, isn't it, in one way? It's a kind of Mm. distance regulator. It's saying, don't get too close, you'll break me. But also, I'm a a treasure. I'm I'm something rather magical and wonderful. Um, And so again and again, you can kind of see that um, you you give up a lot. You give up, you know, public approval in a simple sense. Uh, When you you really study and you forensically try and look into the snippets, and it is only snippets, you know, of, of of the real daily lives of these people, you do more and more start to see what, you see it as kind of ingenious. Often,
0: yeah. The book is called "A History of Delusions." Victoria Shepherd. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Moncrief.
1: brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays
0: at two pm on News Talk.